Well, this is a, a familiar text, of course, in our gospel today. Hopefully I can kind of present it in a way that, you know, maybe looking at it in a way we haven't looked at it before. If you notice, what's the question on the one hand, and on the other hand, what's the response? So the question, what's the greatest commandment? Singular. So that's what this guy's looking for. And the answer to that question, if you're just looking at it in terms of the singular, is kind of obvious because the Jews of Jesus' day, when they prayed, they wore these um, uh, devices. I don't know what the word you'd call them, kind of like these liturgical implements. And uh, they were referred to as uh, tefillin. And you'd have a box on your forehead. And to this day, Orthodox rabbinic Jews will wear these when they pray. They had a, a box that would be on their head and then a box on the arm. And it was wrapped, it was secured in place through all of these leather bonds and straps. And in the box was what's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. So, this is the—I mean, this is a big commandment. It's a passage from Deuteronomy chapter six, I believe. And uh, all the Jews would wear this thing, okay? And uh, so it was kind of a big deal. And if someone were to ask a little kid, "What's the greatest commandment?" I think at that day they would have said that. They would have recounted that. So Jesus' answer to this question is really not theological brilliance. It's more of just sort of common sense for the Jews of his day. But notice what he does, though. He doesn't stop at that first commandment, which is, would have been obvious, I think, to most people of his day. He adds a second one. Uninvited, okay, kind of rude, right? He, he, he adds a second commandment. And it's this kind of little commandment buried somewhere in the back of Leviticus. All right? He says, that little unknown commandment, that's the second greatest commandment. So what Jesus does is he takes the Judaism of his day and he, what in our term, modern terminology, he Christianizes it by humanizing it. Okay? So, and this was the problem of many of the religious folks of his day, and it's a perennial temptation for all religious people, is to say, I love God, but then in your heart, you really don't love your neighbor. And if you don't have love in your heart for your neighbor, you don't have love for God. Okay? So the reality, the spiritual reality of the interior life betrays the very words of your mouth. And that interior reality is seen in active deeds towards our neighbor. So St. John famously says in his first epistle, you know, if you say to your neighbor, oh, you know, God love you, you know, and, and go and be warmed, and, you know, he's in need. Go, be fed, be warmed, you know, may God be with you. And then you just leave it at that, and you actually, and you don't put your love into action by providing for his needs, then, you know, what, you don't really have the love of God in you. So both of these commandments are absolutely uh, necessary. This kind of humanizing of religion is so, so important uh, for the gospel and for Christianity. Uh, we have, a, in our theological tradition as Catholics, we have a very important foundational principle, and that is that grace builds on nature. Okay, in St. Paul in Corinthians, he says that nature is first, and then grace is second. So grace can't find a home, it can't find root, it can't find a place to exist and to grow 
unless nature is there first. So at that created natural level, we have to embrace and love and serve what we can see. Okay, first and foremost. Otherwise, the invisible reality of love for God and God's love for us has no place, has no home. It can't really become incarnate and and realized in our midst. Moreover, what's I think very interesting is that sometimes grace works through nature in very surprising ways. And I think we see that in our first reading. Okay, So we've got this beautiful relationship between Ruth and Naomi. Ruth, daughter-in-law, Naomi, mother-in-law. How many relationships between mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws are really that great, right? Think about, think about how amazing Naomi, I'm sorry, Ruth is, how virtuous she is. She marries someone of a different culture, of a different religion, because she's coming from a pagan background. Uh, completely foreign, probably in their language as well, okay? And yet she follows, you know, very important principle. When you marry your spouse's um, parents, really, you need to relate to them as if they're your own parents. Okay? How often do we see, oh, those are your parents. Oh, could you tell your parents not to? No, they're your parents too. Very important principle that the fourth commandment applies to your in-laws just as much as it applies to your biological parents. And I think if married couples would actually accept that and, and behave accordingly, you'd have a lot, lot less troubles, you know, in marriages. But so here's Naomi following the fourth commandment in relate, in relation to her in-laws. Her own husband's dead. She's got no, but there was this bond that was formed very deeply between her and her mother-in-law. And notice what she says. The mother-in-law is not, she's not like this kind of crazy controlling, control freak, you know, which sometimes mother-in-laws can be, right? She says, look, you know, my son is dead. Your husband is dead. Why don't you go back to your own people? Okay. You know, so she's not this kind of attached. You're going to serve me like a slave or what? She's not like that at all. And Ruth freely of her own, of course, says, no, your people are my people. Wherever you go, I go. Your people are my people, and your God is my God. Notice it's interesting, though, because she lists you and your people first before your religion. Isn't that interesting? Now, is Ruth here putting, you know, the second commandment before the first? I don't think so. I think what we see here is that great God's grace is working through that natural human relationship and leading Ruth on to that fuller dimension of the love of God. You know, so often people, maybe they'll criticize, you know, it's very common in in Catholicism to say, you know, my wife is Catholic. Uh, I, I mean, I wasn't raised Catholic. I'm not so sure I'm super excited about Catholicism. But you know what? I... Because I love her, I'm going to uh, become Catholic. And that, some people may say, well, that's a wrong motive. you got to have the right motives. Well, you know, be careful about that because God's grace works through nature and you have these natural considerations. That can be God right there, beginning to work that seed of grace. Okay? So it's a beautiful relationship between grace and nature, between uh, the first commandment and the second commandment, how they are integrated with one another, how they complement each other. So, so important. Not to lose sight of one or the other, but to hold them both together, never to underestimate how important their union and their bond is. And that's the genius that Jesus is doing today in our gospel. He's not given the 
standard response to Deuteronomy 6. He's adding that unknown passage from Leviticus in there. And thereby he's broadening our horizons, he's humanizing uh, our relationship with God, and he's really um, preaching the gospel to us, pure gospel.